Hi, my name is Mark Chansky. I am the coordinator of the Reformed Baptist Network, and it's my privilege to be able to bring to you another episode of Net Talk. Net Talk, where we discuss topics that are related to the Reformed Baptist Network's purpose, and that is glorifying God through fellowship and cooperation and fulfilling the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. And I'm able to have with me today, and I'm so thankful he's been willing to come, to have with us today uh, Paul Smalley. Paul Smalley is a, actually a member and a leader and a preacher at one of our Reformed Baptist Network full member churches. That's the Grace Emanuel Reformed Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, Paul, good to have you with us. Thanks so much, Mark. Paul has been really uh, a lifeline even to my home church, Harbor Reformed Baptist Church in Holland, Michigan, in the last couple of years as he's preached really timely messages to us. Lord has raised him up uh, for a time such as this in our local congregation. Paul, I've told you before, and, and now I'll say it even more publicly, your ministry has really been medicine for my soul personally. You've been kind of a, a heart therapist for me over the last couple of years. You you bring the word. It just seems to me like it's it's so commonly just apples of gold and settings of silver. So so thank you, Paul, for your your ministry to my own soul. Thank you, brother. You've always been a great encouragement. Now, Paul M. Smalley, he, he labors at Puritan Reform Theological Seminary. That's in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's technically, I suppose, I think you're called, Paul, the research assistant to the chancellor. That's Dr. right. Joel Beakey. Yep. And, and you have a, a, a THM from PRTS. That's correct. And uh, again, I suppose also a faculty teaching assistant as well. And I know that you. I am a faculty teaching assistant. Yeah. Say it again, Paul. I am a faculty teaching assistant. Yes. 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 So you're so part of the faculty, and I know that before that you you've served as a pastor in Baptist General Conference churches in uh, the Midwestern U.S. And I think you you preached and and pastored right up uh, Upper Peninsula, Michigan, near the border at Wisconsin there. Actually, in northern Wisconsin itself. Okay. Okay. So, Paul, could you just give a little thumbnail bio sketch of yourself? To some, you may be a Melchizedek without genealogy. <laughs> a little something. And then even, even mention there how you got to northern Michigan. Sure. Well, I'm not Melchizedek. I'm not that old. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I grew up in a... Um, in a church, but I really don't remember hearing the gospel until I went away to college. So my parents taught me to be a, uh, an honest, hardworking person, but I thought that was the way I was going to get to heaven. Um, mm -hmm. But God in his grace arrested me uh, when I was 18 years old and um, opened my eyes to see that there was no way I was ever going to be good enough to go to heaven. Um, through some faithful people at a church and college and a campus ministry there, I heard the gospel for the first time and God saved me. And um, 
almost immediately had a really strong sense of wanting to study and even teach the word of God to others. So um, finished up college, um, ended up going to seminary. I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, got a good seminary education there, especially in terms of uh, exposition and exegesis of the scriptures. So, and- Any professors who were strikingly helpful to you, Paul? Uh, say again? Any particular professors who were strikingly helpful to you there at Oh, Tenth? well, sure. Um, I mean, I, I sat under people like Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem um, for systematics. Um, I uh, sat under Doug Moo for New Testament exegesis, Richard Averbeck um, in Old Testament. So um, not men that would fall within the Reformed Baptist confessional camp, but still men who had a lot of wisdom and yes. did a lot of good. Yes, yes. So after Ted's, where did you go? What did you do? Uh, the Lord called me to serve as a pastor in, uh, I served for a year as an interim pastor in Northern Illinois, and then I went up to far North Wisconsin. I was 18 miles away from Lake Michigan, or not Lake Michigan, Lake Superior, my mistake, um, way up in the Northwoods, which mm. is where I met my wife. Mm. And uh, then we moved down to Iowa and served a little church in a small town in Northwest Iowa for several years. And um, that's where God blessed us with our three kids. And then I started taking uh, classes in the THM program here at Puritan. And so I would commute out here. And um, in the providence of God, ended up landing a job working for somebody named Joel Beakey. Yes, yes, uh, yes. So we moved out here, and we were delighted to be able to join the Reformed Baptist Church here in Grand Rapids. Uh, it's been a great blessing to our family ever since. Well, concerning Joel Beakey, I have a volume here, uh, volume one of the Reformed Systematic Theology. Revelation in God is the topic of the first volume. But it says here, Joel R. Beakey and Paul M. Smalley. And uh, there are four volumes, four volumes, Paul, is that total four? Total four, the fourth volume should be out, God willing, in the end of May. Okay, okay. And I know uh, just in talking to Dr. Beakey over the past, he says, you know, uh, Joel's name, uh, Paul's name is on here, not simply because he was some kind of an editor of sorts, but he is really as, a, as, a, as co-billing, well-deserved, not merely courtesy that you are basically a co-writer and that he testifies that you've borne much of the heat of the day burden when it mm -hmm. comes to putting together this volume. In fact, I even think of how this is, this is net talk and we focus on things to do with the Reformed Baptist Network. But I see that in the first volume, the dedication page, you wrote this. For the pastors of Grace Emmanuel Reformed Baptist Church, and you write... A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity, Proverbs 17, 17. And also then, iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another, from Proverbs 17, excuse me, 27, 17. And then, you wrote, you are true brothers and friends, and I am sharper for it, Paul Smollett. Yeah. 
So we, we appreciate the church in Grand Rapids and the influence that they have had for us in Holland here. And, and uh, your impact, I think, on uh, church history will be significant regarding these four volumes. But that's not all you've done, I know, Paul, because here we want to focus on this hour on really what a striking promotion is that's come out from Reformation Heritage Books. In fact, one of your one of your pastors there at the Grand Rapids Church, Pastor David Woolen, he's an RBNet man as well, and uh, he is promoting at RHB as he's the CEO there. Right. Uh, that book, The Law and Gospel by John. Now, I admit, <laughs> about 38 years ago, I wrote, <laughs> I, I read the book on repentance, but and I called him. John Culquin, in my own mind, anyway. And then I know Dr. Beaky, I've heard him call him Calhoun, but you have said it's really more accurately Calhoun. Yeah, that's what I'm told. Some either Calhoun or Calhoun, but the QU is silent. Yeah, so I was dead wrong 38 years ago. Who would know? But it says here uh, through RHB, you can get a free copy. It says uh, you can enjoy this valuable resource for free, maximum 10 copies per order. And then also you can get an ebook for free. And if, if you would look to uh, the website, it's just called no spaces, thelawandgospel.com. Again, thelawandgospel.com, no spaces. You can get to that page that will access these free copies. And, and on that page, it says this. In the treatise on the law and the gospel, Cahoon helps us understand the precise relationship between law and gospel. He also impresses us with the importance of knowing this relationship. Cahoon especially excels in showing how important the law is as a believer's rule of life without doing injury to the freeness and fullness of the gospel. Now, that's, that's quite a task to be able to present those things in biblical balance. Amen. So, so it says that, that Cahoon, uh, born 1748 and then lived till 1827, was an ordained minister of St. John's in South Leith in 1781. He served there for 46 years, was a minister in the Church of Scotland. His sermons and writings reflect those of the Merrill Brethren and the succession of the church. Cahoon's writings are theologically astute and intensely practical. And then it says there in, in this section, it says, understand the book. And it says, Paul Smalley, of the Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary presents a series of 15 concise yet detailed lectures on the law and the gospel, discussing each chapter and its central themes, as well as important background on the life and times which Cahoon ministered and wrote. And so that's why we're talking to you, Paul, because you've done 15 concise lectures, and they've really been highly touted by uh, Dr. Beakey on this matter. So let me just ask you to start, Paul. Why is this particular book, this particular book, so important and timely that, that such attention 
is being given to it by both RHB and Puritan Reformed and Dr. Beaky and you. Well, the law and the gospel really are two critical issues for our salvation. And they're both so sweet and helpful to us. And yet, um, in a lot of ways, people play them off as if they're two opponents in a boxing match. Mm -hmm, and for one to win, the other one's got to go down. And so it's there's a lot of confusion about law and gospel. Um, any kind of emphasis today on the law is generally viewed as legalism. And, uh, of course, that brings all kinds of confusion in terms of how to interpret scriptures from the Law of Moses to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and one thing that Cahoon does exceptionally well is he he takes these two things and he shows that the, the law and the gospel are, are like God's right hand and his left hand. Mm. Um, they're different from each other, and yet they work together simultaneously in people's lives, both unbelievers and believers, to accomplish God's good purposes. Um, and he works that out. He, he he takes it from a different angle in each chapter and talks about, say, the differences between the law and the gospel, um, but also how they in, are in harmony with each other and how our relationship to the law changes when God saves us. Um, very practical stuff. Mm, mm. Yeah, I, I think of today and how, on the one hand, there is an easy believism which would simply view the law as a tutor that leads us to Christ. Well, in fact, here I'm, I'm, I'm touching on these issues of what, what about the idea of, say, say those, those three uses of the law? And I think, well, explain it. The, the one use of the law is it's a, it's a general restrainer from evil, right? So that right. evil men aren't as bad as they could be. Can you expand on that a little bit? Now, well, when you read the Ten Commandments, which is the sum of the moral law that God gave to Israel, um, they really function as kind of a constitution for the nation of Israel in that first use of the law. Um, and we all recognize that. Laws like um, you shall not steal, you shall not murder. These are fundamental principles for ordering society. And so when these laws are taught, preached, inculcated within a society by the people of God, they do have a general influence of causing people to say, I don't want to do that, mm -hmm. both because of civil penalties, um, but also because of just the general shame. And we can even see that in our own society, the stripping away of the law of God, the taking of the Ten Commandments out of the public sphere. Well, what's happening? People are becoming more and more bold and brazen in committing sins that they might have committed in the past, but there would have been a lot more shame. They would have felt like we need to hide this. There would have been a restraint on it, and it's not there anymore. Yeah, I like the idea of divorce. You go back to the, the 60s and the 70s when divorce was basically illegal unless there was legal grounds, but now it becomes no-fault divorce. It becomes legal, and the floodgates open. Right. Right. Yeah. So the first use of the law is, is very important. Um, it's limited. It doesn't produce any actual righteousness in people's lives um, because only the grace of God can do that. But as a restraining force in society, 
it does make a big difference in the world that we live in. It um, it restrains influences that are very destructive um, to the family, to indiv individual people's lives. And it also sets a general context where then we can share the gospel and people mm -hmm. at least have some sense of, yeah, I know I shouldn't do that, but I still do. And that helps us to show them their need for the Savior, which then flows into the next use of the law. Yeah, that second use, then, if the first use is restrainer from evil, then that second use would be a tutor to Christ. And there's a, there's a convicting power that that law second use brings. Is it, tell us about that. Yeah, the, the Reformers often spoke about that, um, kind of the, the preparatory use. In fact, Dr. Beeky and I uh, wrote a book called Preparation for Grace by Grace, um, where we analyze what the Puritans said about that. Um, and that's not in all a kind of legalistic approach where we're trying to, you know, make people better before they come to Christ. It's the use of the law where God, the Holy Spirit, impresses upon the human conscience um, the ways in which we have violated God's will. Mm. Um and he takes the spirituality of the law, the quality of the law, where it shines not just on our outward behaviors, but on our hearts. <laughs> and shows us that those, those evil, angry, lustful, greedy, proud impulses of our hearts, those too are, are culpable before God. Um, and that begins to show us that I'm not a good person and I can't save myself. And that that then, like you said, becomes a, a tutor that leads us to Christ. It begins to prepare the way for us to say, I need a Savior. So that when we hear about the Savior through the gospel, we can see that, oh, this, this is sweet. This is exactly what I need. Mm, mm, mm. So uh, that idea of the, the word of God is living, active, sharp as a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, mm. jointed marrow judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart, even the Romans 7, that the law comes to show sin to be utterly sinful. Uh, what a wretched man am I? Right. Or hopeless. Who will, who will rescue me from this body of death? So that's the work of the law. Exactly. Yeah, you, you read the, the Sermon on the Mount, and you hear Christ saying, okay, yeah, you shall not murder, but that means you shouldn't be angry at someone in a sinful way, or you shall not commit adultery. Well, if you look at a woman with the intent to lust after her, you've committed adultery in the heart, you begin to say, oh, God, um, instead of thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, like the Pharisee prays in Christ's parable, you, you start to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mm -hmm. And you know, Paul, I think when it comes to the the ministry of the word and being a true pastor who declares the whole counsel of God, it's so crucial that we that we take the law as the scriptures do and present it. In fact, frankly, Paul, in your preaching, I find that you do that. I find that there are some who have a tendency to just say, well, Romans 3, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Almost broad brushing in an external way without really digging deep and mining into the heart to really expose. And, and there are times when <laughs> you you draw conscience blood, Paul, sometimes when mm -hmm. you preach. And, and someone might look at that and say, well, 
well, that's we're supposed to be gospel preachers. And this is an age of gospel where we bring balm and, and our message is, uh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're to bring good news. But isn't there a reality in which that first use of the law tutor to Christ displays the bad news? Yeah, it does. It really does. And and this this is something that the reformers understood very well. You remember how the book of Romans was so important in the Protestant Reformation. And I mean, what is Romans? Paul spends chapter after chapter opening up the, the great and evil sins of mankind, the sins of the Gentile nations, the pagans without God, but then he turns on the people of God who had the word of God, and he exposes their hypocrisy and, and how much how proud they are. We've got the word, but he says, you don't keep the word. Mm. And he just presses and presses and presses before he gets to that verse that mm. summarizes it. Um, and so this is really crucial before we understand the gospel um, to preach law and together with the gospel to preach law. And, and that's built into the Heidelberg Catechism when it talks about, you know, what three things do I need to know to have true comfort in this life? And the first thing is the misery of sin mm. and then the deliverance that's in Christ. And then out of that flows the gratitude of loving God and keeping his commandments because of what Jesus has done. Yeah, and the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, obviously, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. I've, I've I've never, I've never stuck a revolver in the rib cage of my neighbor, right? But I tell you, if there, if you fool, if there's anger, hatred, in the heart, or not commit adultery, you've heard it said. If you've lusted, oh, the the exposure of all of the creeping, crawling lizards of the heart that are exposed in the law when it's properly taught. That's right. That's right. And, you know, the irony is that even though people might say, well, that kind of preaching of the law, that just makes for Pharisees. What Jesus is doing in Matthew 5 is he's actually exposing the Pharisees. The Pharisees were all about an external righteousness that you can keep. But what Christ is doing is he's taking the law and he's piercing through those those outer layers of self-righteousness even says there in Matthew 5 that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's not talking there about justification by faith. He's saying that you need to have an inward change. You need to be broken on the inside over your sins and be brought to a place of dependence upon me, being poor in spirit, before you're going to enter into my kingdom. And the law is very helpful for that. Yeah, that's a mouthful. Even when you think of interpreting the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, it it is talking about, really, it's sanctification. I mean, Lloyd-Jones says, this is drawing the, the portrait of the, the true born-again biblical Christian who has a regenerate heart. Mm-hmm. The Spirit of God dwells in you, so your righteousness will surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, because you're not just a whitewashed tomb. You have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Amen. Yeah. yeah. Well, but that, that, that that's excellent. We could we could stop and talk there. But that, that first use of the law, tutor to Christ, I'm sure Cahoon addresses that in his uh, treatment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he talks about all three uses of the law, the, 
the civil use of the law and the what's sometimes called the evangelical use of the law, um, but also the third use of the law, which is the law as a rule of life for the believer. Yeah. And he especially focuses on that one. So, so in the idea of guide for life or rule for life, Cahoon says basically, well, the gospel then sends us back to the law. I think Dr. Beek even said this in his little uh, uh, video that advertised the Cahoon book. He said, uh, sends us back to the law to live the Christian life out of gratitude. Right. So, so talk about that a little bit. Guide for life. And, and by the way, th this is a crucial use of the law. There, there is a lot of antinomian out there which says, well, once the law has been a tutor and it's brought me to Christ, uh, then the idea of being free from the law. Uh, but but wait, in a sense, yes, as tutor to Christ, yes, it's 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 freedom from the law because Christ has fulfilled the law. But still, our relationship with the law doesn't end. Right, right, and that actually goes back to creation itself. Um, Cahoon draws a very clear connection there between the fact that the law always has to function as um, the revelation of God's will and, and of our obligation to God, because he is the creator and we are his creatures. And as long as God is God and we are creator or creatures of God, we will owe him our obedience. Mm -hmm. and, and Christ doesn't change that. Instead, he comes not to save us from obedience, but to save us from disobedience. Mm -hmm. So that, um, as it says, he died to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify a people for himself who are zealous to do good works, Titus 2.14. And so Christ comes to restore our proper relationship to our creator um, and he doesn't come to, in any way to lessen our obligation to obey, but instead to remove the condemnation that the law brought as a covenant of works, and also to bring to us by his spirit that, that inward desire and delight mm. in the law so that we want to do God's will. The kind of delight you can see exhibited like in Psalm 119. Oh, I love thy law. It's my meditation all the day. Yes. Yes. And, yeah. and you, you talk about uh, being delivered from the condemnation of the law, like a, like a Romans 8, 1, for there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. well, why, is, why is that dimension a real, a crucial one when we think mm -hmm. of truly uh, taking on that law as, as a rule of life to know that there is, is no condemnation. To talk about that little piece and how significant that, that dimension of assurance is, that, that Abba, Father, those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, they crowd Abba, Father. Yes, yes. Yeah, so Cahoon recognizes that both objectively and subjectively, it's crucial for us to be delivered from the condemnation of God's holy law against our sins. Um, we, we can't be in right relationship to God until that judgment against us is taken away. And it can't be taken away by our obedience to the works of the law. Mm -hmm. um, we've already broken the law, 
And we are by nature lawbreakers until mm -hmm. Christ saves us. So we just dig our hole deeper. Um, so it's it's absolutely important for us to have a restored relationship to God so that then God begins to work in us as our friend um, by his Holy Spirit to change us and make us like, like him. And until we get that right subjectively in our own minds, um, we will be crippled mm. in our ability to obey God's law because mm. we'll be constantly living under this cloud of condemnation. We'll tend to view God not as our father um, who loves us and accepts us, but as an angry judge that we're always mm. trying to appease. Mm. Cahoon also talks about how the law comes to us with a commanding power that demands perfect obedience mm. Mm. and that also puts us into a kind of bondage because we're always on that treadmill trying to make it there and we never get there and so it's it's important for us to recognize that um, not only did christ take the penalty for our sins but christ fulfilled the precept mm. that's what sets us free that way we can say to ourselves, and this is this is astonishing. I mean, this is just absolutely amazing that as God's adopted children, even though our obedience is deeply flawed, the Father sees us in Christ and he is actually pleased mm. with our imperfect stumbling attempts to obey him. Mm. And that means so much to the child of God. And it's mm -hmm. actually, it's difficult to keep our arms around. We keep slipping away from that and then coming back to it and realizing it again. To actually be able to receive the Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant on the last day, though our deeds are so pocked with sin. We've the story of... Uh, Oh, the, the the little boy who comes out of the backyard with all broken uh, grasses and weeds and maybe an occasional flower, but then uh, the the friend who's able to rearrange the bouquet before it goes to the mother in a way that is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And the Lord Jesus does that for our meager weed picking, doesn't he? Yes, yes, he does. He does. So, so is assurance that. crucial? Is, is assurance crucial as we move to the second use of the law as a rule of life? Um, yes, although I think we, we need to recognize, too, that assurance is something that, that comes in degrees. Yes. And so we don't, we don't want to start thinking that, well, until I attain assurance, I can't really live the Christian life. Like it's a second level that we need to get up to in Christianity. But yes, that the more we have an assurance that we're no longer under the rigorous demands of the law for perfection, and we're no longer under the condemnation of the law, but we are accepted in the beloved, um, the more we will have a liberty of spirit Um you know, Paul uses that tremendous image in uh, Romans 7 about dying to the law 
so that we can then be married to Christ mm. and uh, and bear fruit for God. And Cahoon makes much of that image. It, he spends, I think, a whole chapter opening that up and developing that idea because being set free from the law is really only half of it. The other half is being joined to Christ as our bridegroom. Mm. And it's in union with him then that we're able to bear the fruit of actually obeying the law as he himself obeyed the law because mm. his spirit now dwells within us. Mm. Yeah, out of gratitude for the lover of our soul, the love of Christ constrains us. Well, well then often the idea is popular today that well, once I have seen my wretchedness in my own sin and my righteousness in Christ's active and passive obedience, then now I can say, oh, free from the law, oh, happy condition. Now I'm born again. The Spirit of God dwells in me and stirs and gives me what could be called maybe a a theometer so that now i instinctively know what i am to do by some internal reflex and as i'm in tune with the spirit of god within me i can move according to his power within me as it directs me by just giving me an intuition of of which way I'm to go. Does that sound pretty reasonable, Paul? Oh, it sounds wonderful. Let me know how you get there. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to do that in my early Christian life. Yeah, but well, but my, that's kind of common today, because the law, yeah. you know, free from the law, a happy condition. Right, right. Well, I guess my response to that would be, if that were the case, then a large part of the New Testament was written for no purpose at all. I mean, Paul doesn't just announce, like, say, in Ephesians, he doesn't just announce the wonders of God's grace and then say, now go walk in the Spirit, have a nice day. He proceeds in chapters 4, 5, and 6 to give very specific instructions, commandments. This is how you're to act. He obviously does not think that, well, now that we have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's just going to tell us what to do. And Paul is very clearly echoing, sometimes directly quoting Old Testament passages. In Ephesians 6, he directly quotes one of the Ten Commandments and just lays it on kids. You know, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Um, and then he quotes the Fifth Commandment, to honor your father and your mother. He obviously believes that we still need to hear the law of God, including the Old Testament statements of it, in order to know what we are to do. Yes, of First John 3, this is love to God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Or even the, the 2 Corinthians 5, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, old is gone, new is come, and the idea of creation, think of the original creation. I mean, really, it's paradise lost, paradise restored, in the, in the beginning, when man was made in the image, man was made and wired in such a way that he was to submit and obey God's verbal word, instruction, commandments. Right. You, right. Male and female, I, you're made in my image. You're to go, you're to subdue and rule. 
be fruitful, multiply. Those are words of God that man was to listen to, submit to, and obey. And that's paradise. Yeah, and we're not in paradise now, so we certainly need the law. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so I think of that idea. So someone once said this, Paul, uh, love without law is blind. Law without love is dead. I'm mm -hmm. sure Kahoot talks about that kind of an element. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How does Kahoot address this? Well, Cahoon talks about how the law comes to us now in the hand of Christ. Huh. And so it, for him, it's not law versus Christ. It's Christ who brings us the law. And so he, he makes that connection between the law and Christ in the life of the believer and really, think about it. Um, you think about the, the Reformed tradition where Christ is presented as our prophet, priest, and king. Hmm. And so we, we can't isolate those from each other, leave any one of those three out. So for sure, he is the priest that we need to, by his obedience and sacrifice on the cross, to make us righteous with God and his continuing intercession for us. But he's also a prophet to teach us about right and wrong. And we see that in the Gospels and as he works through the apostles and others who wrote the rest of the New Testament. And as Cahoon points out, Christ is also a king. And mm. he comes to us with the full authority of God. He is the God-man. Mm. So he didn't come and die to let us off the hook so that we don't have to obey anymore, or we can just, you know, do whatever we feel like because the Holy Spirit's living within us. Christ mm. came mm. to rule us, and one of the great means by which he rules us is his word. Mm. Mm. Paul, in chapter 4, Cahoon addresses the rules for understanding aright the Ten Commandments. Could you talk a little bit about that? You've got the first table, the second table. I think of the idea of uh, second table. Let's even say honor father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. Uh, how, how does a Christian actually relate and under, relate to and understand those those ten commandments as now a born again saint? Yeah, well, what Cahoon does is, and again, he's standing here as one who is bringing in the harvest of the Reformed tradition. So he's not innovating these things. These are all things that you can find, for example, in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Um, so, but it talks about how in in the Ten Commandments, so if if a, if you say, you shall not do this, it not only is giving us a prohibition, it's also telling us something about what we are to do. Um, so uh, thou shalt not murder, or thou shalt not kill in the King, King James Version. What does that teach us? Well, that teaches us that God values human life, and we should not destroy human life without just cause and just authority. Um, and that tells us then that we are to take care of each other and to help each other. 
um, or um, thou shalt not steal. Uh, Paul in Ephesians, can you tell I like the book of Ephesians? Um, Paul, Paul in Ephesians chapter four says, um, let him that steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. So the commandments are not just saying thou shalt not, they're also saying thou shalt. Mm -hmm. You need to get out there and work hard and make money and support your family and have something to help poor people with. <laughs> and so that's one principle. Um, another principle is um, if, if a commandment expresses our duty, it also tells us something about our duty towards other people to help them keep the same commandment. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if uh, honor your father and mother, well, that that certainly is directed towards um, the the children, the sons, the daughters. But that does have an implication for parents, too, because if their duty is to honor us, then we need to strive to live in an honorable way. And we need to repent of the ways that we have actually hindered them. Not that they're not responsible for their actions. Each one is responsible for his own actions. Mm -hmm. We are responsible to try and help them. So that's another principle. And, and by going through and showing these ways to interpret and apply God's laws, and there, there's several principles here that he gives, what, what he shows is, is the Ten Commandments are not just these kind of isolated um, okay, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, I didn't do that list of rules. It's actually a system. It presents a moral and ethical system for all of life. And the more you meditate upon these commandments and the more you reflect upon how the scriptures themselves apply them, you see that every aspect of human life, our relationship to God, our relationship to people in their person, in their property, in their sexuality, all these different things are summarized for us in the moral law of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, and isn't there also displayed, Paul, a beautiful continuity from Old Covenant to New Covenant? Obviously, in the Old, there were shadowy elements that were not seen clearly, that maybe it was in just the, the dawn of Revelation, where now... We, post-cross, are in the full high noon sunshine, but really in, in, in the law being presented at Sinai, it, it starts with that prologue, which is, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the house of bondage, out of the land of slavery, Egypt, and then the commandment. So it's, it's in a context of, of grace yes. that it was to be understood that the obedience would follow. And so when we think of, well, was the Old Covenant merely justification by commandment-keeping? Uh, no, the, it was always by, by grace, through faith. Comment on that, Paul. Yeah, the, um, the, uh, the Reformed Scottish divines like the Erskines uh, made much of the prologue to the Ten Commandments and argued there that it really does set the commandments in the context of grace. And as you just said, it, it makes perfect sense. God didn't say to the um, Israelites, here are the Ten Commandments. If you keep them, I'll save you. Mm. They'd still be in Egypt, right? Yes. Um, he said, I saved you 
I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you. Now, as my redeemed people, you have this relationship with me, so keep these commandments, because this is how you please me. Now, the difference is, when God did that with Israel, it was an outward deliverance. And many of the people had not yet experienced the inward deliverance of salvation, although some had. Under the new covenant, the what was a type or a shadow of, uh, of what Christ would accomplish has now been fulfilled. As Paul says in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So, so Christ is our exodus. Christ is our redemption. Mm. And, and now God comes to his new covenant people and said, says, I, I saved you not just out of Egypt. I saved you from Satan and sin. Yes, yes. You are mine. Um, you are my people, and I am your God, and I'm writing my law upon your heart. So now by my grace, this is my will for your life. Do this, because this is what pleases me. Yes. And then and then it puts that again in that context of of now on the basis of what Christ has accomplished for us, that exit exodus out of the house of bondage to sin and Satan. Uh, the way that now we're we're set free and we have this this love to Christ. I, I think of uh, uh, Ernest Kevin has that book. Uh, the law, the, the grace of law, right? And I, and I, I sense that there's this kind of an exquisite treatment also in Cahoon, which it, Kevin will say in uh, oh back in Exodus two, where Pharaoh's daughter uh, tells Miriam, "Go get your mom," and then Jacobed comes, and Pharaoh's daughter says to her, "Commandment: Take this child and nurse him." <laughs> And the way the commandment is so exhilarating and thrilling, the very thing Mother Jochebed was eager and zealous to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I think Cahoon works with that, doesn't he? Yeah, he he talks a lot about the um, the way that the law comes to us as grace and with grace. Mm -hmm. um, again, uniting the law to Christ. And so we're delivered from the law as a covenant of works, he would say. Um, but we wouldn't want to be delivered from the law as a guide to life because mm -hmm. we love God. Yes, We, we want to know how to please him. Uh, we do it very imperfectly, but the law helps us. It's a light to our feet. Yeah, well said, well said. Well, Paul, we could talk long, but uh, I think we've opened up the topic well. I hope we've whetted the appetite, little hors d'oeuvre, regarding uh, what you can experience and what you can learn by this really free offer that's available, free copies of the book, and then these lectures that you provide alongside the book. I just think of how beneficial this could be for a Tuesday night Bible study, mm. whether it be... Uh, Oh, in your neighborhood, or uh, all the ladies in the church gathering together, uh, on and on it goes. And again, you can go to, on your web browser, thelawandgospel.com. Again, thelawandgospel.com, and you can get a hold of these copies and even get access to the lectures that Paul Smalley brings on this 
crucial book on this crucial theme. Paul, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, may the Lord bless you, keep you, and turn his face towards you and grant you peace. Thanks for your kindness to us. Thank you so much, Mark. It's a privilege to be on your program, and God bless you as you continue to serve RBNet as a leader and an encourager um, and a servant of the Lord.